Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Forbidden from sleeping with men, the Agozi, the regiment of immensely fierce female warriors who fought for the kingdom of Dahomey, were recruited when young and forced to undergo the kind of military training that would turn most of us into conscientious objectors. One British traveller described how the women were forced to scramble across dense thickets of acacia thorns without anything to protect their feet from bleeding. Other tests were designed to desensitise them to the horrors of combat. Every year, new recruits of both sexes were required to mount a platform 16 feet high, pick up baskets containing bound and gagged prisoners of war, and hurl them over the parapet to a baying mob below. And in perhaps the most horribly memorable detail, a French officer called Jean Bayol watched as a teenage recruit called Naniska, who had not yet killed anyone, was brought before a captured young man whose hands were bound. According to Bayol, she swung her sword three times with both hands, then calmly cut the last flesh that attached the head to the trunk. She then squeezed the blood off her weapon and swallowed it. Nice. Now that... (laughs) That was top historian of Africa, Dominic Sambrook. Oh, my word. Writing in Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. And Dominic, you were prompted to write that article. Yeah, based on my own close research age. I don't want to stress, <laughs> yes. Tom. Yes, well, that's very evident. But that was inspired by The Woman King, a film that came out um, last September. Yes, the Viola Davis, John Boyega film, which is about the formidable... Amazon warriors of Dahomey. At least that's how they were presented, wasn't it? So then yeah. there was a huge storm, if you remember, because Dahomey was um, a kingdom, an empire based partly on slavery. So there was a huge storm about whether or not these characters should be portrayed as anti-slavery freedom fighters, as they were in the film, or whether this was traducing the historical record. And lots of people on social media got really agitated and tore lumps out of each other about it. And I thought... I'm going to wade in. <laughs> I thought this is a great opportunity to write about my favourite subjects, which are blood and guts. So I did. And so you took it. Yeah. Okay. And so this idea that, you know, that there were, were regiments of, of what European observers at the time called Amazons, it's obviously, I mean, it's a kind of incredible detail. It seems barely plausible. But then um, I met uh, Luke Pepperer, who is an anthropologist, historian, a broadcaster. And Luke, you're busy writing a book, Motherland, 500,000 Years of African History, Cultures and Identity, which uh, I think will be coming out in 2025. And you said that this theme of Amazons in Africa, that I wasn't just kind of projecting Eurocentric fantasies. Please reassure me that I wasn't, that this is something that is actually a feature of various places in Africa. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, female fighting forces, soldiers, military commanders, it's something that's very much a feature of, you know, of African societies and African cultures. I mean, dating all the way back to, um, you know, that of Kush, which, uh, you know, existed in or was once in uh, modern day Sudan, you know, began in about 5000 BC, um, ended at about 350 AD. And there was a period from about 200 BC to about 100, 200 AD where they actually had, um, you know, female rulers, the Kandankes, who also led, you know, campaigns um, against the Egyptians, against the Romans. So the most famous is Amani Uranus, who in sort of 26 to 23, 22 BC, you know, fought against the Romans who had, you know, just, just conquered Egypt. And we're also trying to annex Kush as well. I mean, what's interesting, obviously, about the Amazons in, in sort of um, the you know classical Mediterranean is that there's a kind of uh, you know there's there's almost an inbuilt fear because the Amazons of that ilk um, are basically like an all female society who don't even allow men to live in their society. Like it's very it's like what would happen if all the rules of society were completely reversed? And so I'd say one thing I would say is that there's a bit more of a balance um, in the reality of the African societies. But you can definitely see why um, that attitude of, of Amazons, or at least the perception of Amazons, came across 
to the Europeans who were, um, or Mediterraneans, ancient Mediterraneans, whoever, um, who encountered the female commanders and the female soldiers that existed in numerous African societies and cultures for 2,000 years. So the Amazons have popped up a few times in the rest of history. Mm. Alexander the Great was supposed to have met the Amazons. Mm. We talked about, in our series, recent series about Columbus, about how one, at one point some of the instructions that he has when he goes out are, see if you can find where the Amazons are. So when Europeans go to Africa, mm-hmm. and the, I mean, obviously all this reflects this kind of fascination this sort of um, probably quite heavily sexualized fascination with mm. kind of nubile female warriors mm. and this sort of belief that it's exotic, but it's also forbidden, it's transgressive and all of this sort of stuff. Is there any sense, I mean, I know we're massively generalizing because we're talking about different societies mm. at different points in time, but do you think there's a sense in Africa, as there is in Europe, that female warriors are transgressive, but sort of also sexy as it were glamorous as mm. w- or, or is there more of a sense that they're just mundane they're part of you know of course societies have female warriors that's completely yeah. natural completely normal oh that's a great question um i would say actually mundane just because you know like i said in in you know in africa it tends to be it's not just a feature for example of the military it's actually a feature of all of society where you're going to have female counterparts um to male positions in society you know for example in Kush, you know, in ancient Kush, and, and actually, you know, even non societies like the ninth century, Asante, even in Dahomey, there's basically an ideology of duology and dualism, which is essentially that in order for aspects of society to function, you need a male and female counterpart working together. And that's often reflected in the belief systems as well. Usually the main gods of, you know, a lot of these African cultures are actually, um, you know, either they're both male and female. Um, so they're actually of two sexes or they're of the two sexes fused into one. And it's only by, you know, that connection, that fusion, that actually that God comes into being. So you see it even, for example, in political institutions. So in ancient Kush, from at least the 8th century BC, you, for example, have, um, you know, the institution of the queen mother there is very strong. So the king rules, but the queen mother, i.e. the mother of the king, is the most important person in the kingdom, even though she's not the one actually in charge of the day-to-day operation of state. And that is the king. And kingship in Kush and in other African societies, you know, in fact, quite a few, is elective, meaning that there's a council who decides who the best prince is, and they make him the leader. And then what happens is that his his mother ends up becoming the queen mother and becomes the most powerful person, um, you know, in society. But the king has quite an interesting relationship with his mother and with his wife, and all three are needed. And the wife and the mother represent the female counterpart. And the king and usually the brothers represent the male counterpart, and both are needed in order to rule the state for it to, you know, believe to be functioning effectively. Um, so that goes for the military as well. Um, that goes even for the household. So it pervades all parts of society. But Luke, there are examples, aren't there? Also, not just queen mothers, but of women who rule as queens, who have the rule of an entire people. And you mentioned that you have a particular favourite, don't you? Oh yeah. She was the first person that you nominated when we started discussing this subject. So this is Najinga of Ndongo. Yes. Have I pronounced that right? Mm-hmm. So tell us about her because she is, I, I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of her, but having read up on her, she really is an amazing figure. Yeah, she's quite amazing and you know, really interesting because I think she's, um, she has this aspect definitely of being heroic because of what she achieved. But actually, the brutality that characterized not only her time, but also her rule, you know, and things she did sometimes to her own people and, and also to um, the Portuguese who were fighting, yes. makes her quite a, quite a fascinating figure. And, you know, in- I mean, she's not just Inderardin, is she? No. <laughs> no, definitely not. She's 17th century. So she's a 17th century ruler of the kingdom of Ndongo, which is what was once in northern Angola, what's now northern Angola. And she's actually the first female ruler of that kingdom. So women are treated, you know, actually fairly well in that kingdom, equally in that kingdom, you know, uh, they're not considered property. They can divorce their husbands if they like, go back to their father's family, even elite women. So royal women like Injinga was. Um, so she was part of the royal family of Ndongo, was allowed, and she said was allowed to sit in on, you know, the meetings of her father's political councils and military councils, etc. But she was actually the first sole female ruler of that kingdom because actually female rulers, even though there'd been female ancestresses, you know, the, there wasn't actually a precedent of a, of a woman being totally in charge of the kingdom. And so she was unique in that regard. But, you know, she comes to power, you know, she comes to power in, in the mid 17th century. But, you know, it's really just after the Portuguese have gained quite a strong foothold in West Central Africa, first with the Kingdom of Congo, which is nearby, just northwest of, of, of Ndongo. Yeah. And then with Ndongo itself and the Ndongan rulers of the late 15th century, early 16th century are quite keen initially 
to uh, build relationships with the Portuguese because they see Congo, you know, as also a rival kingdom, gaining goods and power and weaponry, etc. And they want a piece of that. But then afterwards, and this being in the late 16th century, the Portuguese attempt to found a colony in Indonga, the colony of Angola, because they're, you know, they're making alliances with the king. Sometimes the king, including actually Njinga's grandfather and father, are using them to fight you know, rebellious nobles. But then, you know, when the Portuguese, for example, defeat these nobles, sometimes conquering their lands and they fall out um, with the kings. And then obviously they wanted to found their own colony as well, based on because they, they start making, you know, inroads deeper into West Central Africa, coming across Congo. And this puts them at odds with the rulers of Ndongo. So they, they fall out as well. And there's this really this tense and conflict-ridden period um, that precedes uh, Njinga's rule. But she's not uh, trained to be queen is she she has military training i think as a girl but she doesn't yeah her brother is king first her brother's king first so yeah i mean she she did have training in regard because actually she was um you know as, as the story goes she was actually her father's favorite right um so ingola ambande is her father and you know she's recognized as being special as being particularly talented i mean she's born in in, in the 1580s and in, in the breech position with her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck and this is seen as being an auspicious sign and when the the Mbundu, that's the name of the inhabitants of the kingdom of Ndongo, see her being born in this position. You know, they 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 actually say, "Oh, my mother!" You know, it's it's it, there's a sense that she's destined for greatness. Yeah. So she's taken really under her father's wing. She's the best at throwing the axe, which is and the axe is like a symbol of Ndongan, you know, authority, royal authority. So her brother hates her, doesn't he? And you can see why. I mean, if you're oh yeah yeah, your big sister is better at throwing an axe than you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no no no. So there's a resentment there. I mean. Ingola, so what happens is Mbande Angola is actually assassinated by his own men. There's a rebellious sober in the north called Gavulo, and um, you know the Portuguese are also um, uh, you know engaging in conquering activities in the region. And you know his men are his men and his nobles basically see him as a weak figure. Um, so what they do is they trick him into they say that you know their forces um, need help you know, you know by a river in the north where uh, where the sober's rebelling, and they take him there, and then his own men turn on him and assassinate him. And then what happens after that is there's a power grab by Angola and Bande because um, he really wants to be king. He wants to prove himself to his father and to his people. So, I mean, he just goes on a, on a killing spree. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, a 17th century GTA type. He kills everybody. But not Njinga, not his sister. Not Njinga or his sister. So he has, um, apart from Njinga, he has two other sisters, Fun- Kambu and Funji. So he doesn't kill them, but he kills Njinga's son, for example. Njinga has a, has a baby son. Um, with one of her male concubines. God, imagine Christmas. <laughs> I don't know if he was invited, to be honest. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, there's an interesting point you raised there because actually having, you know, assassinated him, Njinga goes east. She she actually, you know, exiles herself to the kingdom of, of Matamba. And, you know, she's there for quite a few years. But, you know, he assassinates his, uh, you know, his, his uncles and, um, you know, his brothers and their sons. And I mean, he just, he, you know, he kills everybody. Sounds he sees terrifying. his power. Yeah, no, he is a terrifying figure. I mean, possibly mildly psychopathic. Am I right that he then needs Njinga to come back and negotiate on his behalf with the Portuguese oh, because yeah. she can speak Portuguese? She can speak Portuguese, yeah. So is she Christian by this point? No, not by this point. But she's been raised by Portuguese missionaries so she can speak the language. Obviously, you know, the Portuguese were a feature of the Ndongan court. So she has exposure to that, but she's also very proud of her Mbundu heritage. So you're right, when she's in Matamba, I mean... Ingolanban is failing miserably against the Portuguese. He wanted to keep the integrity of his kingdom and he's just failing. Like, you know, the Portuguese are still conquering and the Portuguese make a deal with these, uh, group of, uh, of marauding militants or former soldiers called Imbangala. They're basically like mercenaries. So the Portuguese make a deal with them and they actually sack the capital of, of Ndonga Kabasa twice. Okay. So that's not going well. Not going well. So anyway, he yeah. calls back Injinga from Matamba, not only because she's popular, but because he knows that she also, you know, dislikes the Portuguese and wants them out of the region. And like you said, has this exposure to Portuguese culture. She's a lot more worldly than he is. Calls him back, sends him to, to Luanda, which is obviously now is the capital of Angola, right on, right on the coast. Um, and that's the Portuguese stronghold given to them by the Congolese, actually. So that's the Portuguese stronghold. So in 1622, he sends her there to negotiate a, a deal and he wants the Portuguese to, you know, give back part to the kingdom to, you know, to, to help him against the Imbangala. Because <laughs> the Imbangala, once they've destroyed the kingdom, you know, they just leave the Portuguese and they go back and sack it again. Like they don't, they, they don't, they don't take orders from anybody. So he wants that help. And actually when, you know, you mentioned Christianity, it's as part of this negotiation. Um, in exchange for Portuguese, you know, support and peace, that Injinga agrees to be baptized. 
she takes the name Anna de Souza and has um, um, you know, a, a Catholic godmother and is baptized as part of that. Uh, as, yeah, as part of that deal. When she goes to do these negotiations, is this the Portuguese are all sitting down and they don't give her a chair? And so she orders an attendant and sits on the attendant. Is that is that story true? That is true. Yeah, yeah. That's it's very regal behaviour. Yeah, it's very, there's an even an engraving of it, which is really interesting. You can see images, you know, because it's um it's definitely one of her most sort of engaging moments. But that's true. I mean, whenever the Portuguese conquered the nobles, so the nobles called sobers, whenever they conquered them and made them sign, you know, uh, submission pledges afterwards, and even during the pledge, they used to make them sit on the floor, whereas the, the Portuguese governor used to sit on this gold embroidered velvet chair. Um, so it was to reinforce and also act as a symbol of that, of, of that submission. Um, and they try to do the same to Njinga because they want her to sign, um, you know, the submission deal and they don't give her a chair. And she calls over one of her female attendants to make a chair. She just sort of goes down on, you know, her, her hands and knees and Njinga sits on her and, you know, apparently conducts the negotiation for hours just in that position. This is promising that she's going to be a great queen. Oh, I yeah. mean, this is yeah, very yeah. much the kind of behavior you want. So her brother dies and she becomes queen. Yeah. And then what happens? So her brother dies, she becomes queen. She's always trying to, you know, she engages in, in, in a policy of trying to make peace first rather than war. I mean, she's, so she's actually trying to reach out to the Portuguese, but she's very keen on not submitting to them. So she's trying to engage in deals with the Portuguese governors and, you know, they're having none of it. So it's actually after that that she initiates um, a, a rebellion um, against the Portuguese. She sends her messengers into all of the air, you know, Basically, where the Portuguese plantations in West Central Africa, so they have people working there and tells them, you know, her messengers tell them that, um, you know, she's standing up to the Portuguese um, and that they need to support her. There's a period of maybe 20, 30 years where she's essentially trying to make peace with the Portuguese, failing, then battling with them. The Portuguese are pursuing her, you know, on different islands, on her strongholds. And, you know, she's uh, she's trying to remain one step ahead of them, trying to engage in peace. But, you know, it's essentially, um, you know, a conflict ridden few decades um, against the Portuguese as she's trying to maintain the integrity of, of the kingdom of Ndonga. And then how does she get involved with, is it Kasanje? Kasanje, yeah, the Mbangala. So as I mentioned, she, there's this sort of, um, you know, there's this back and forth conflict. So actually she makes a deal with Kasanje after a major loss of the Portuguese. You know, she, she loses terribly to the Portuguese in the late 1620s and, you know, her forces have been decimated and she needs more soldiers. So she makes a deal with this uh, Mbangala leader called Kasanje. And as part of the deal, um, she not only has to give give up her, her symbols of royal authority and agree to marry him, um, but she also has to become an Mbangala herself. So she goes through the rituals to become an Mbangala. And that's a colossal deal. Big deal. Huge deal. That's that's giving up her own cultural heritage to embrace that of their traditional enemies, right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't consider the, the Mbangala to be their traditional enemies per se, but it's definitely contrary to Ubuntu custom. You're totally right in that regard. I mean, the Mbangala are, are lawless, like, you know, for, for the most part. Right. You know, they live by, by pillaging and, you know, and some of the things that she has to do, and, or at least is said is that she has to do in the Mbangala camp, including, you know, a blood oath ceremony where she has to drink the blood of the Mbangala and that kind of thing, run very contrary to Mbundu customs, exactly like you say. Just a quick question on that. So I was reading about that, that uh, she drinks human blood. She has to use some sort of oil made from a, a slain baby or something. Yeah, a crushed baby, one of her attendants, yeah. Right. And uh, is that stuff just projection and fantasy, or is that did that really happen? You know, it's so difficult to say. I mean, the, given the brutality of the Mbangala, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know if I would you know, rule it, com- you know, completely out. One thing I would say is that whether or not it was a European invention is something different. It could be a Portuguese invention, but then again, I wouldn't necessarily blame Portuguese. It could actually be something that the Mbangala, you know, either say themselves because their whole thing was about to inspire fear right. you know, in peoples around the place. So it could either be from them or, you know, it's, it's metaphorical. They're different explanations, but it could actually be, yeah, a, you know, a real thing. Because Najenga seems to be an absolute liberal. Um, <laughs> an absolute worst. So, so um, she goes yeah. to war with uh, the kingdom of Matamba. Oh yeah, is that right? And she conquers them and takes the queen captive. Yeah, Mwanga. Yeah, and so she should properly put the queen to death, but instead yeah. she it's very liberal democrat behavior. She just brands her. <laughs> oh, Tom, that's just that's snowflakery, isn't it? Absolute <laughs> snowflakery. Absolutely. I mean, especially this time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And and takes her daughters into service as her warriors. Yes, yes. Well, she yeah she adopts her daughter. You're right. Um doesn't slay Mwonga, uh, the, the queen of Mntamba, brands her and sends her into exile to rule another part of the kingdom. But she dies shortly after. Snowflakery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think it's partly because she has a reverence for, for royalty. I think that was actually it, to be honest. Okay. So it's like Elizabeth I not wanting to kill Mary, Queen of Scots. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's and not spilling royal blood. Yeah. So at this point, 
Is she ruling very much as a queen, i.e. as an identifiably female monarch? Or is she, you know, doing that thing where she's ruling as a king, but she just happens to be a queen, if you know what I mean? So in other words, does she, does she dress and behave as a man or as a woman? That's a good question. She definitely doesn't, you know, shy away from being feminine, you know, in certain regards. Um, like she has, you know, tons of male concubines, et cetera. But then there is also that behavior where she makes her, some of her male concubines, you know, dress up as women. And then acts as, you know, okay. a man. So it's part of. Right. And her bodyguard is female. So her soldiers are female and her concubines are male. And there's kind of full scale cross dressing going on. I mean, she has, uh, yeah, like you said, close female, you know, attendants and generals and all the rest of it. Who exactly those were, we're not sure. But she also has female concubines. But then also, that wasn't unusual in terms of, you know, women being allowed to have relationships with multiple men. Um, and, and especially if they're royal women, you right. see it in other places as well. Right. Yeah. And so what's happening with Cassandre, meanwhile, because he doesn't seem the kind of guy who would, <laughs> who would necessarily be happy with his wife keeping um, large numbers of men dressed as women. Yeah. With concubines. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Cassandre, Cassandre himself has, uh, you know, says he has up to like 30 sons or something. He's a lad. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's probably busy. To be, he's, he's probably busy himself. Um, but that's true. But how are they getting on? Are they still a fixture? Yeah, I mean, there, there's still a, um, you know, an alliance between them. How strong this is after the conquest of, because she's still using, you know, in Bangala forces, she uses them to conquer, you know, to conquer Matamba. I mean, you know, afterwards, Cassandre also wants to found his own kingdom, actually. So he's sort of getting closer with the Portuguese. So there does seem to be an, a freezing of, of relations between them, but she's still relying on his, his you know, his, his quote-unquote manpower. And so she... What is it? Going into the kind of the 1630s, she becomes more and more powerful. Yeah. She enters into an alliance with the Dutch. She starts supplying them with slaves. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because that goes back to that thing we were talking about at the beginning about the... Um, the Dahomey. Yeah, the Dahomey, the warriors of Dahomey. So she is slave-taking. That's a pretty established military practice, is it, for, the, for that kingdom? Yes, but I think, um, you know, when it comes to Africa, obviously there's two kinds. So the slavery that's happening in Africa, i.e. the types of people that Njinga herself has in her service are probably better described as serfs. Now, this is, this is not to suggest... That it's fun. N- not that it's fun, but then also that Africans aren't, you know, enslaving people to sell them to, you know, for example, you know, knowing, knowing full well that they're going to be traded across the Atlantic. But actually what's happening in Africa and the reason Njinga is angry, for example, with the Portuguese is because they're enslaving for largely as well free Mbundu citizens. So right. that's an issue. Right. And so by building this alliance with the Dutch, um, and she's got her terrifying husband as well, yeah. she's able to essentially to rebuild the power of her own people. Yeah. And she ends up able to essentially kind of reconstitute it and to establish peace treaty with the Portuguese. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she, she makes an alliance with the Dutch, but the Dutch actually let her down. So this is in the 1640s and she agrees to supply. Oh, well. So often the way with the Dutch, Tom. So often the way. <laughs> you know, they, they, they form an alliance in the 1640s and they're supposed to storm, you know, Luanda, make it up. But then what happens is the Portuguese send reinforcements from South America and they start bombarding because the Dutch have taken Luanda. Oh, so this is all part of the First World War, Dominic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Thomas theory, uh, Luke. It's yeah, a- the Dutch-Portuguese War, global war. Yes, exactly. It's all part of the Dutch coming into and and taking, you know, the Atlantic trade from the, you know, from the Portuguese, but also in South America as well. I mean, they take, you know, the the sugar producing regions of of Northeast Brazil. But Najinga is able to capitalize on it, basically. Yeah, she's able to capitalize on it. But like I said, you know, they make a deal to storm the capital. And essentially when it looks hopeless, the Dutch go ahead to Luanda and board ships and take off, you know, whilst Najinga is waiting, you know, for the order. Um, or at least, you know, for, for them to make their assault, their combined assault um, on the capital. So then she has to, you know, try other strategies. So what she does is, again, she does this sort of, I mean, two, three-pronged strategy, really. So from Matamba, which is before she conquers Matamba, she's essentially a guerrilla. You know, she's, she's engaging in guerrilla warfare. She doesn't actually have a base until she captures Matamba after instigating the rebellion. But she engages, you know, quite a lot with the, with the Capuchin missionaries, and she writes to the Pope, and she tries to get recognized as a Christian monarch. That's one big thing that she does. And does that work? It does. Yeah, yeah, it does. The Capuchins, because they're very keen to start missionary work in Ndongo, and they want her to give up the traditional practices, the Mbangala rites. So her state starts to become, she starts to Christianize. Is that right? Yeah. So she starts to Christianize probably, I would say, I mean, it's always hard to say, because obviously, like I said, she becomes baptized in the 1620s, but definitely in the 50s particularly, 
um, 1650s, 1660s. She Christianizes, but she's also launching attacks against um, Ndongo because the Portuguese have installed a puppet king there. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's launching attacks against him, you know, putting on the military pressure. She's closing the slave markets the Portuguese are relying on to supply their plantations in Brazil. And she's also trying to reach a diplomatic conclusion. So she's actually doing all of these things. That's why she's renowned as a very capable leader. You know, her strategic mind is unbelievable. So she's doing all these things at once in order to bring the Portuguese to the, uh, to the negotiating table. But at this time, they also have, um, you know, her sister Cambo in captivity as well. So she's keen to get her back, you know, so they capture her, uh, you know, a few years before. And one of her sisters actually has been drowned by the Portuguese also having been captured. Um, cause she's sending, Fuji's sending letters, you know, she's, she's in Portuguese captivity and she's sending letters to Njinga via secret spy network telling her about Portuguese movements. And the Portuguese discover these and, uh, you know, and, and execute her. Um, so only one sister remains. So one part of the reason she does this as well, especially after the Dutch failure, is to really bring the Portuguese to the negotiating table because she wants her sister back. It works at the end. You know, all of her strategies sort of converge. Um, the Portuguese, I mean, her military one was probably the main thing. You know, the, the, the overseas council, you know, basically tell the Portuguese governors to, to behave themselves. They're like, they're spending, you're spending so many resources fighting this one woman. And we're losing money hand over fist, you know, end it. Like they're, like, they're like, please stop. So that is actually, I think it's actually a military, you know, activities in particular. And the fact that she's open to peace, that brings the Portuguese to the negotiating table in the early to mid 1660s. So it works. So her strategy works. It works. I mean, and, and you know, they sign a deal. Um, the Portuguese in the, in the initial contract, cause there's a bit of a back and forth between what the terms are going to be, you know, you know, contracts and deals go. And, um, you know, the Portuguese initially want to, want to put in the in the treaty that she has to supply uh, slaves, like a tribute of slaves every year to the Portuguese king. And she asked them to take that out. I mean, not not because, you know, again, not because she's like a woke. Not because she's woke, <laughs> not because she's anti-slavery per se, but because that would mean that Ndongo is a, is a vassal, you know, is, is a, is a submitted yeah. state to the Portuguese. So yeah. she asked them to take them out and the Portuguese do. And actually she gains back most of you know, the, the original kingdom of Ndonga and is recognized as the, as the queen of Matamba. But then comes to a very pathetic end. She dies of a throat infection. Yeah, dies of a throat. But she's old. This is the thing. But she dies in her bed, doesn't she? I mean, that's an amazing feat for a warrior queen. She's 75. She's been fighting as Portuguese for 60 years. 75. Wow. That's pretty good going. That is good going. A large part of which she's been in the field. You know, in fact, what she says, she thanks her soldiers after the peace is affected. One of the things she said is, I'm tired. Like, I've been doing this for six years. I've been in the field. I'm an old woman. I just want to live with my sister in peace. Like Tom after a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. What an amazing woman. And uh, thanks so much for introducing me to her. I'm very ashamed I'd never heard of her. Doesn't she appear in the Marquis de Sade, Tom? Yeah, she does, I think. He claimed that she had 50 to 60 men dressed as women in her harem. Yeah. And they had to fight to the death for the privilege and duty of spending the night with her. Right. Okay, I don't know about the second, the first part's true. (laughs) People say that about Cleopatra and stuff as well. Right, right. That was brilliant. So I think we can definitely notch her up as an African Amazon. (laughs) Let's take a break now. And then when we come back, we'll look at the Dahomey warriors, but also we'll look at some uh, Amazons who are very close to your heart, the Ashanti queen mothers, because you are Ashanti, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, the Ashanti are very much friends of the show. We did an episode on them. So um, when we come back, the Ashanti queen mothers. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me, he says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him, I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. She might have been anywhere between 40 and 50, rather round-faced, with a small straight nose, a fine brow, and a short, broad-lipped mouth. Her skin was jet black and plump. And then you met the eyes, and in a sudden chill rush of fear, realised that all you had heard was true, and the horrors you had seen needed no further explanation. They were small and bright, and evil as a snake's, unblinking, with a depth of cruelty and malice that was terrifying. So Tom and Luke Pepper, you will of course know that that comes from one of our very best sources on 19th century Africa, the papers of Sir Harry Flashman, (laughs) who in the novel (laughs) Flashman's Lady by George MacDonald Fraser, he pitches up at the court of Rana Valona, the mad monarch of Madagascar, a tremendous figure. We'll come to her in just a second. But Luke, you are talking us through African queens and African Amazons, African female warriors. And uh, we were promised that you would talk about Ashanti Queen Mothers, who apparently, for whom you have a tendresse, I believe. Yes, yes. So um, I'm Ashanti uh, myself. And, um, you know, this is one of the first things that I got into, especially when researching African history. And um, you know, even know of uh, Ashanti Queen Mothers of myself on my paternal grandmother's side. So very close to my heart indeed. And so what's so unique about Ashanti Queen Mothers? What makes them distinctive? So this is Ghana, isn't it? This is the kind of great kingdom, 17th century, right the way up to the colonial period. Exactly. So now we're looking at modern day Ghana, um, the Ashanti Empire founded in the early early 18th century. And they have a golden stool, don't they? Which is the golden stool, exactly. The symbol of the of, of the Ashanti and, you know, an, an axe as the king's throne, although it's not actually allowed to, um, nobody's allowed to sit on it, always kept on its side. Um, but Ashanti is unique um well actually probably not unique i would say but it's definitely very unusual you know even in africa actually for being both a matriarchal and a matrilineal society um so women rule the roost and you know in all kinds of ways and the queen mother is the most important political figure um you know in the ashanti authority um so that is that is what's you know quite unusual about it is that we have you know this 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 one figure who has a say in so many aspects of of, of society um, and who has power unrivaled in a lot of the societies in Africa, but also over the world. Um, you know, and everything that an Ashanti person is is connected um, to to their mother. But the the, the, the queen mother is um, the, is the mother um, of of the Ashanti Hindu, the Ashanti king. And so, who is the most celebrated, the most martially proficient of the uh, of the queen mothers? Probably Ya Santiwa. Who, yeah, who fought against the British in the early, you know, the, the War of the Golden Stool. It's a great war. <laughs> it's a great war because she refused to give up the Golden Stool when it was demanded of the Ashanti yeah, by the British, and um, you know, actually ends up losing in his exile to to the Seychelles. But you know, she stood up because a lot of the Ashanti kings, you know, they actually had quite good relationships with the British. Obviously, they were they weren't keen to fight, and she, you know, lambasted them and said, you know, you you weak men, and you know, this wouldn't happen in the time of your ancestors and all that kind of thing. And then leads a resistance against them. So she's probably... So this is this is the end of the 19th century, is it? End of the 19th century, early 20th. She's she's probably the best known and the most revered as well. So a lot of Monganaans, including my own sister, in fact, is, you know, are named after her, are called Yajewa, which is which was her name, and then Yasantewa when she obtained her title, when she became Queen Mother. And so as the Queen Mother, do you have the power of command? Do you wield the power of life and death? Any of these kinds of things? <laughs> Immortality, true. Yeah, good question. I mean, what you most have actually. So it's a more it's a more kind of power behind the throne type situation. So the king rules. I mean, we were talking about Kush earlier. It's sort of that kind of situation. But the queen decides, has the final say on who the king is going to be. So kingship in Asante is also elective. And there's actually a council of elders, the Bususa Chiri who decides on the next king and, you know, the people from all matters of, of, you know, the spectrum in terms of being from politics or from military or wherever. But if they choose someone with whom the queen mother is not happy, she can veto. She is the only one who has power to veto that decision. 
And she's the only one who can order the Asantehini, you know, even in front of his, uh, his counselors and his advisors, can give him instruction. <laughs> Don't tidy your bedroom. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially. She's yeah. the only one who can give him instructions. And in fact, she stands, you know, when King is, you know, is, is seated in council, she is to his right just behind him. And that's so that if she's threatened in any way, a burn arrow spear, he can actually leap in front of her to protect her. So she has incredible spiritual, you know, um, symbolic and political authority, but she doesn't actually handle the day-to-day, you know. So she, for example, she doesn't, usually she doesn't um, lead, let's say, for example, the army. But she can summon them to war. Yes, but when the king goes, right, okay, she's put in charge of, of the state. So that qualifies her to rank as an African Amazon. Just one question about the Ashanti. So there is obviously still the king of the Ashanti. Yep. So is there still a queen mother? There is still a queen mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and is she still regarded in the same sort of the same respect and awe as her predecessors. Yeah, same respect, same reverence. She's not as public a figure. Right. So even exactly, you know, <laughs> with the kind of power she wields, um, but you know, with also Tutu the second, yeah, his mother, you know, she's she's very much power behind the throne. In fact, he wouldn't have become, you know, king if not for, you know, her authority and her say so. But usually, I mean it's more flexible now, usually like I said it was the mother, but now it could be an answer like a senior female relative. Um, so whether it's even exactly his mother, right. probably it's, but um, none too sure. So queen aunt. Queen aunt, yeah. indeed, indeed. So they all sound great, but Dominic opened this segment with a description of of a perhaps possibly slightly more terrifying sounding figure. That was actually the only bit of Flashman's Lady about her that I could read out without the podcast being cancelled immediately. So Luke, Ranavalona, the mad monarch of Madagascar. So she's 19th century. Yeah. And this is a period where the the British and the French are both kind of throwing their weight, expanding, moving into Africa, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And she takes a stand against this. And is her reputation as a mad monarch with eyes like snakes that convey pure evil? Is this a reflection of European propaganda because they're cross with her because they're, they're being kicked out? Or is it actually true? Do you know what? I think it's largely a reflection. And to be honest, that's not to say that um, Rana Valona wasn't, wasn't brutal and can call her own way. I think she was. But a lot of the sources you have are basically 19th century London missionaries who don't agree. <laughs> she, so, I mean, you're like, there's a, definitely a certain perspective. And actually, one of the few sources we have from a Malagasy woman in the 1850s is an Austrian traveler, Ida Pfeiffer, who goes to uh, Madagascar and she meets the queen and she describes her in sort of a similar way to um, in the novel of Flashman's Lady. Actually, said you know, she actually wasn't as bad as all that, <laughs> honestly. But the fact that you know she's considered you know mad or having gone you know having gone mad at the end of her reign, I think is is an exaggeration. But she definitely wasn't in terms of for the ordinary uh, marina. It was definitely a, a harsh reign um, to be under because she was uber traditional. Well, that was the the aspect is that she wanted to because her, her husband, who she gains the throne from, you know, after he dies, um, Radama was you know quite open. To, to European and Christian influence. And she was the complete opposite. Um, so she institutes a lot of these, and, you know, even in some respects quite, um, and, and definitely to us today, you know, um, archaic and brutal, um, you know, institutions of traditional marina society, which especially to 19th century Europeans was, uh, was, was really quite shocking. So I think that's where that comes from. So like what, Luke? That's what all the listeners want, I think. <laughs> yeah, so the, um, the Tanguena, which is like a trial by ordeal. So what happens is if someone is accused, of a particular crime, usually it's, it doesn't happen often. It's usually very serious crimes, like um, you know, being a, like treason. What happens is that they're fed a meal of of rice and, and three pieces of chicken skin, and then also the the kernel um, of the seeds of, of a tanguena plant, and then they're fed lots of uh, water in order to throw up what they've just eaten. And if they throw up all three of the chicken skins, they're considered innocent. But if they don't throw up any, you know, less, less than three, they're considered guilty and and put to death. That's a very baroque trial, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? As, so, but but what happens is that Radama again, being you know wanting to cozy up to um, to the British, and particularly actually takes you know British arms and, and agrees to have them trained militarily. Um, you know his troops. He agrees not to use this trial on human beings. Radama instead on dogs. Dogs on dogs. So he's like, all right, we'll do it on dogs. Hopefully that'll be fine for you. And Ranavalona takes it back. So this isn't because the dogs themselves have offended. It's because the dog belongs to the... Probably belongs to the person or is standing in for the person, yeah. So you could be accused, Tom, and you could you have a cat, for example, <laughs> Edith. And Edith yeah. could stand in for you 
in this trial? And if she vomited yes. up the chicken skins... She, she would vomit it up. I mean, I, I don't want to go into details, but... She's got form. There is no orifice she is not voiding at the moment. Oh, right. Nice. That's happening live. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm not going to go into the details. <laughs> but, but I mean, so, so if she's going around killing pets... Yeah. No wonder she has an evil reputation with the British. Well, exactly. No, no, no. She takes it back to killing humans. That's what, that's what. Right. I mean, the thing is, the British probably are more upset about dogs being killed than, than humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but she's killing Christians. Isn't that the key thing? There's that in terms of taking back, but then it's her persecution of Christians. Like I say, just because she's, she's uber traditionalist. So she, you know, she holds these grand meetings where she tells Christians to, um, you know, to denounce themselves. And, you know, if, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, if they do come forward, some of them are maybe told to pay a small fine, but others are executed. When there's a Christian prophet who's um, come up with his own secretic religion, mixing aspects of Christianity with, you know, the traditional marina um, religion, because he used to be a, a guardian priest of one of the marina gods, um, you know, he's put on trial and he's executed. She has like a spy network and she used to root out Christianity. And uh, yeah, so I mean, and, and you know, she launches a fair few um, during her reign in the 30s and the 40s, 1830s, 1840s persecutions against Christians, which obviously doesn't sit well with Europeans. Yeah. But then also, you know, there were quite a few people who were, you know, converting in, in the kingdom as well. Um, so it's a bit of a reign of terror. Is it true, the statistics I've read, that the population of Madagascar in her rule halved, went from 5 million to 2.5 million? No, I don't think that's true, honestly. I think that's a, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. Oh, it's not true. <laughs> we say that, but you know, for example, when she's rooting out, there are some, you know, people who are dying from not just, for example, the persecutions. I mean, sometimes up to, you know, hundreds or even thousands of, you know, of Christians over the course of her reign, but also, you know, people who are dying, um, you know, for example, from overwork. I mean, she initiates, for example, like a, a buffalo hunt. Um, later on in her reign and you know Radamar didn't believe in building roads because he thought that they'd aid the advance of an of an enemy army um, and she in accordance with his wishes also didn't build proper roads but then you know she organizes for all of her nobles and their households to join her on this on this buffalo hunt in, in you know in the 40s and you know she she gets you know some of her people to basically build the road as they're traversing and you know but she hadn't organized for the provisions as well so these constructors are just dropping like flies and you know being dumped into into open graves and then more are being used to some exaggeration so i think that's it's from also those kinds of things there's a tremendous scene in uh, say in the flashman book so have you heard the flashman book tom I, years ago so flashman pitches up in madagascar he serves as her military advisor and sort of and concubine actually it's stud and may and stud stud is the word and yeah. stud so he's constantly being he's in terror of his life and he's sort of being dragged around by her and he has to sort of perform on cue and he's quaking in his boots but he does so but there are scenes where he will have just performed with her and then she will sort of imperiously brush him aside and go out onto the balcony and down below they've got lots of suspected christians mm-hmm. sort of who are quaking themselves down below. She'll point at a group of them and she'll just say, burning. <laughs> and then she'll point at another group and say, boiling. <laughs> and go through all this. That's, that's very Amazonian behaviour. That's quite funny. She did do it quite like that. <laughs> Often, actually, these orders would be read by, you know, a member of her judiciary or something. So she wasn't actually doing it herself in terms of poisoning out who would be killed, but she'd be giving orders for them to carry out. Um, but I think one of the reasons maybe she ranks, you know, would rank as Amazon is that actually, um, you know, the, the British and the French launch a combined attack against her and against the coast. Essentially, they're, they're pushed back. It ends up failing. And, um, you know, she then afterwards launches embargoes against the British. So she, says, she says she's not going to import or export cows to the Mauritius and the French, you know, French island of Réunion. And, um, you know, afterwards, you know, the, the, the merchants on those islands actually end up paying her a fine. And at the time, $15,000. That's what she demands in exchange for what she considered an insult. Okay, so you can see why she'd have a, why she'd have a bad rap. Exactly. But obviously, there's a complete counter-narrative to all this, isn't there? Which would be, you could tell this whole story and you could say this is a story of heroic resistance of leadership under tremendous, you know, a little bit like in Jinka in the first half. You can, you can, for sure. Because there is, you know, quite a lot of pressure. And, you know, one thing she wants from the French, for example, is to be recognised as the Queen of Madagascar. They won't give it to her. And, you know, the you know the French and the British are engaging in activity in this area, military, economic, um, political. And because she's an uber-traditionist, you know, when her forces defeat the British-French invasion, she's seen as being a hero amongst them. But then also there were a lot of Marina who suffered as well, you know, especially those who adopted Christianity. Um, so, yeah. The way in which these stories about Amazons are interpreted 
and reinterpreted depending on where you're standing, what your perspective is. Mm-hmm. Brings us back to the um, the topic that we began this podcast with, the Dahomey warriors. So what's your take on them? I mean, these these did exist. They did. Now, um, see, it's quite interesting because they weren't always, for instance, a, a fighting unit in the army, in the Dahomey army. They became that later on, and actually they start off as a bodyguard and a mostly ceremonial bodyguard for the king. There was a Dahomean custom, which I'm not sure of the origins of, but there was a Dahomean custom that like, no man was allowed to sleep overnight at the king's palace. So if he wanted to have a bodyguard, he had to form them of, of women. Ha, that's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it has to be done. Initially, these were actually his wives. You know, that's actually where the name, you know, Ahosi or Agusi comes from. It literally means king's wives, you know, um, or they're known as uh, Mino, our, our mothers. So they're actually initially taken from the female group at the palace, at the royal palace. So it's mainly in the 18th century, they, they, they act for the most part as a bodyguard. And actually there, there are, you know, reports in the traditions of Dahomey of when, for example, there were power struggles and when, you know, different factions were fighting against each other for, for rule of the kingdom, um, or there were coups, the women protected, you know, their king. You know, it happened actually when Gizo, who is the woman king, the king, you know, the, the king and the woman king. So when Gizo, you know, comes to power, he comes to power via a coup. And the women of his, you know, of the person from whom he takes the throne are said to have fought very bravely, you know, in his defense before Giza comes to power. Um, so in the 18th century, obviously Giza comes to power in the 19th century, but the 18th century, the, you know, the Dahomean Amazons are very much a, like a ceremonial, partly militaristic bodyguard. And it's actually Giza himself, you know, has credit for transforming them into a proper fighting unit in the army where they're used in wars against um, other powers. And they are used to capture slaves and to sell slaves? to European powers, is that right? I think, you know, the way that that would be, um, you know, broken down is that obviously they engage in, in battles with other groups in Africa. So for example, their fights against the Yoruba and then the majority, and this is what actually happened with the majority of, of enslaved people in, in Dahomey, especially on, in the 18th century under the king, for instance, Agaja, is that most of the people, captives of war would be used as serfs in Dahomey. And then what was left over would then be traded to, to Europeans and their fates, you know, unknown, not really sure. But they weren't actually sent out on specific slave raiding expeditions. Right. But they often captured people of war who then went on to be sold as slaves. Yeah. And Luke, that description that, that Dominic gave us in his immortal prose that I read out at the beginning of the episode, and not in any way to, to impugn his status as a historian of Africa. What? <laughs> But all that kind of stuff about the Spartan upbringing, kind of running barefoot on thorns and chopping off heads and things. Yeah. Is this accurate as far as we know, or is Dominic making it up? I'm not making it up. It's from their travellers' stories, Tom. French officers and whatnot. Right. So, I mean, okay, okay. French officers, yeah, as part of the, of the training regime. I mean, you know, whether they were, um, you know, as bloody is obviously to be debated, but there was obviously quite a harsh training regime because, you know, the women... You know, the Dahomean women and you know, the unit of female soldiers in the Dahomean army are reckoned by a lot of the accounts of, of, of 18th and 19th century European travelers to be a lot better fighters than, um, than, than, you know, the men of the army as well, better at, you know, braver and better at using muskets. And actually, there are a lot of traditions, for example, when, you know, the Dahomeans are fighting against, you know, towns of the Yoruba, for instance, that when the men are pushed back, it's actually the women who go in and secure, you know, the, you know, who help them win the battle um, at the end. So they definitely had come through a rigorous process. Also very few of them. I mean, they start off numbering you know, maximum 800. And on the Giza, where they're sort of institutionalized and expanded, um, they go to about 3,000. And, you know, their makeup, you know, the way they're constituted and the way they operate in the field is similar to how the uh, the main Dahomean army, or the, at least the male Dahomean army, also operates. So they're utilized, you know, very much and, you know, very effectively. They're not like a support unit or anything like that. They are very much, you know, uh, an important unit of, of the Dahomean army. I suppose there's two things I would say. One is that, so for example, that French officer, Jean Bayol, who is describing the woman mm-hmm. who kills a captured young man, she cuts his head off. Naniska. I mean, it's perfectly possible, of course, that is being staged Brighton and to impress the French. So, you know, that it's not necessarily the norm, but this is a big demonstration. Going back to what you said in the first half, yeah, people want to be thought of as fearsome and formidable and all the rest of it. Want to be thought of as fearsome, very true. I mean, it's interesting because the weather... I don't know, possibly, I don't know about the drinking of the blood, but I mean, the Dahomeans definitely did decapitate, you know, because actually the heads, that was actually one of the things that you used to take to the king and you'd be paid per head that you gave to the king. Right. And but yeah. then again, it's European reports, apparently reports of heads, you know, rotting like, you know, by the palaces of the Dahomean kings. And But I think actually there was a, a system of, you know, getting paid for giving, 
you know, heads or, or live captives, ideally, but, you know, decapitated heads to the king and you get paid for it. So, Well, that was the other thing I was going to say, though, is that we can't ever quite get away from the fact that so much of this story, and indeed you could, I mean, if you were being harsh, you would say even the fact that we're doing this as a podcast is a reflection of a sort of prurient European fascination. Yes, yeah. And to some extent, even the success of a film like The Woman King, there's a slight folk memory of this sort of, oh, glamorous, sexy, but also incredibly violent. Yeah. You know, do, do you not think that? Do you think that's fair, Luke? Um, I think so. But I think also sometimes a reflection of, of the times, you know, when I, I mean, I'm a big fan of world history. Whenever I read, you know, the history even of the Crusades, or if you're reading about, you know, the, the wars in Europe, World War II, I mean, you just seem that, you know, this is just an aspect of, you know, history, either that people are fascinated by, or sometimes just the sign of, you know, a sign of the times then. I mean, you know, in Jinga, um, for example, was, you know, was, was, was to a large extent a victim of circumstance. You know, she didn't set out to engage in what she did. The Dahomeans didn't set up, but it's true actually as well. It, there's, there's a kind of fascination, but also, you know, it was a, it was an aspect of in the same way that, you know, different European powers or, you know, in China, or India, wherever you had different groups fighting against each other. It's just that you had the, uh, you know, similar thing happening in Africa, especially in, you know, in these brutal periods. But you don't think the fact that they're women makes it more oh, women specifically. Yeah. Um, I think from the European perspective, yes. I think from an African perspective, like we were saying earlier on, it's not that unusual, but it's definitely something that's just not. And, and I don't think there's anything right or wrong about this per se. It's just the way that the cultures have developed. You know, there are multiple theories put for why, you know, Africa does have, um, you know, female, female figures in Africa become, you know, important in, you know, in so many different aspects. And it's, you know, related to environment, but also religion and culture. I mean, you know, so many, so many different explanations. But, you know, in an African context, it's not seen as unusual, but definitely in a, in a Western context, having, you know, women, you know, fighting in that, in that regard. So, you know, up in the front line and, and also obviously the Victorian ideals about women being held up on a pedestal and they can't do this and they have to be let up. There's a lot more cultural, um, you know, weight for them. Not so I think, I think you're right. I think it is, but I think that's just simply because, and it's arbitrary. It's just simply because of the way certain societies in Africa develop and simply the way certain societies in, in Europe are developed. Well, Luke, what a fascinating tour d'horizon um, and uh, I really think you shouldn't come on any more podcasts and you should just devote yourself to finishing your book, Motherland, 500,000 Years of African History, <laughs> yeah. Culture and Identity, because I cannot wait to read it. Thank you. And obviously, when I say don't come on any more podcasts, I'm excluding Alice because it would be wonderful to have you back and talk other aspects of African history. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much for that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back very soon with more history. Yeah. More history dope, <laughs> as uh, Reagan might put it. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 